Did you know that chest pain patients represent the highest volume and highest risk population in most hospital emergency rooms? What do you suppose happens when three rebels tackle this issue with eight proven steps for positive change? Welcome to the Transformative Healthcare Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Chobatar, and I serve as publisher and editor-in-chief of Advent Health Press. We're trying something new with this series. Usually a podcast is created after a book is released, but this time we're going to share the book's concepts before they're published. Our authors are Dr. Jeffrey Kuhlman, Senior Vice President and Chief Quality and Safety Officer for Advent Health Orlando, and Daniel Peach, Director of Clinical Transformation at Advent Health Orlando. Now, let's join Jeffrey Kuhlman and Daniel Peach as they discuss the Chest Pain Project, Three Rebels in a Corner, and Eight Proven Steps That Can Change Everything for Good. So, the gauntlet was thrown down. Chief Medical Officer came to us and said, I want change. I don't want the status quo. It's not an option. And just to add to it, you're not going to have the millions of dollars and consultants that will go through to help you do that. You're not going to have 20 executives lined up to assist and guide you as you go through it. There were three of us. Sort of the rebels in the corner, the people that people didn't want to mix with necessarily because they get you in trouble because they wanted to do things. We were charged with generating a seismic shift, something big, something that hadn't been experienced within, within healthcare as a whole. And really, it was, would our ideas really go anywhere? Now, we've all had good intentions over the years and the way that we've approached things. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of those tend to fall by the wayside. About the same time that we started building these projects and getting going, um, we started to see a convergence of evidence that was coming in from data at the Mecca or the perceived Mecca of all healthcare academics in Harvard. The particular study that was going out there really started to create a real shift. It illustrated some of the factors in healthcare that everyone sort of knew but didn't want to say, and it got buried. Yeah, I think the the key words were evidence-based medicine. Mm. And healthcare administrators, when they say evidence-based medicine, what they're talking about is follow these guidelines rigidly, don't deviate from it and yep. good things will happen. And clinicians, when we talk about evidence-based medicine, we are talking about a very specific clinical statistical approach to the practice of medicine that has to do with number needed to treat, randomized clinical trials, a level of evidence of studies. So it's um, administrators and physicians separated by a common language. Kind of but, like, yeah. kind of like the English and the Americans <laughs> is uh, separated by by a, a similar language. So, evidence-based medicine. Uh, at the time, our healthcare system was working with two of the teaching hospitals up in the Boston area, and also uh, the, a university hospital for uh, the northern part of Europe. And the study that you're referring to that got buried by the academicians was uh, pretty ingenious. Yeah. They they took. Um, dozens of uh, physicians who are attending physicians at the Mecca of evidence-based medicine. They had uh, research people follow them, which is another way of saying wannabe medical students <laughs> yeah. that uh, come at a good price. 
they followed them around and they found that on a day in the, the work day, a physician made hundreds of decisions yeah. and add that up over time. And they found that less than 20% of the decisions made are based on evidence. Scary, really. Isn't it? Well, I, I think that's, that's the estate and that's, um, you know, it's where we would all go for care and they yeah. would, they would do, they would do a great job, but it kind of proves the point that 20% is based on evidence. And then the vast majority is based on practice, experience, expertise, anecdotes, remembering those warning signs from patients in the past. So we call that practice-based evidence. So is there a way to capture that? Is there a methodology that you can capture um, and, and put that experience and the evidence together and put it into a, um, a structured way that physicians can refer to and either follow or if they choose to deviate from that, um, have a rationale to doing that? Uh, what was interesting is that was a few years ago, hmm. just this month, the British Medical Journal did publish an article and they came up with 20% of healthcare decisions are actually based on evidence and the other 80% is based on on a not evidence, just, just other things. So it's just fascinating that um, both sides of the pond uh, came up with the same, uh, the same statistical numbers. And, and I think it, it, it's interesting as a whole that um, you've got that mix of evidence-based practice and practice-based evidence that, that allow the flexibility that's necessary in there. And, and I think so often we try to structure things and, and keep them too focused. And I mean, I, th I think when we first started, one of the big things was looking at, or once we had this information, was to look at chest pain as one of those areas that we could, we could start to, to work on. That one, I, I think, is just a phenomenal amount of patients that we yeah. see in the ED every year. Yeah. I think what we found with the three people in the nondescript office with um, limited resources were people in healthcare are really good about saying, we want change. But do they really? Or are they looking for the quick fix and numerical success? So from our early um, endeavor, Sometimes it's good to be, it's better to be lucky than good. Yeah. So we asked the other hospital systems that we were working with, you know, do you have, do you have a, um, a project that you're working on? Um, so they provided us um, a project that uh, had to do with adults with chest pain that come through the emergency department. And that resonated with us because that's, of course, the number one reason that people get admitted to the hospital from the emergency department when they weren't planning to. Yes. So unanticipated, and it's the number one medical legal issue, and it's um, it's just a real challenging, it can be really bad, or it can be nothing. Well, it, yeah. it, it's such a big arena as well, and yeah. it, it's, as you say, as a small team that were looking to develop a massive change, yeah. um, it was quite a burden to, to bear to look at because... The consequences of getting it right were massive. The consequences of getting it wrong were massive as well. Yeah. So chest pain is the highest volume, highest risk that comes to the emergency department. So we asked them, 
you know, what were the, the numbers? Because in evidence-based medicine, the, the, the numbers are important. And the first pilot, they had run 50 patients through. The next, they had run 150 patients through. Hmm. And so they had very interesting results from that. Um, so our healthcare system, every day, we see 100 patients with chest pain yeah. in the emergency department. So they had captured those numbers over months. And um, so that was, um, that's, that's what we picked to start with. And I just, I remember thinking, we're not sure this will work or this will be accepted, but let's try it. And I, I think the, that, that's one of the other big things that with, with building any of these, these routes to, to help patients is, is about having the bravery to step off and, and to do that. And I, I think the, the good thing that's necessary is to have some form of structure that will help you format that. Yeah. So, the structure, I think, is important, the methodology. Yeah. So as opposed to rapid cycle improvement of, well, let's just tell the doctors to do it this way, what became apparent is it has to be a cultural change. Yep. So what are the values that the, that the team has? What practices and behaviors do they say is the best way to do it? And so it kind of seemed pretty straightforward of this is change management. So in change management, you kind of go to the Bible, you go to Change Management 101. <laughs> yeah. Change Management 101, probably the most eloquent um, is the godfather of change management. So John Cotter, Business School, Harvard, who published 30 years ago, yeah. Leading Change. And it sort of stood the test of time. So for change management, there's, there's basically uh, eight steps. Yeah, and, and those, I mean, they're fairly straightforward. So you're looking to establish the a sense of urgency to create a guiding coalition, develop a vision and a strategy, and, and be able to communicate that change vision. You've got to empower the employees for broad-based action, and you've got to regenerate those short-term wins, consolidate those gains, and produce more change, and then finally anchor those new approaches to give it that, that cultural result that we're looking to get. So it's, it's actually interesting to step back and look at what they actually mean, how each of those eight steps develops. So if you look at establishing a sense of urgency. I, th I think what we learned is others had tried change and they take shortcuts. Yes. Or they partially implement some of those. Or they, you know, PI projects, many have improvement, but then they don't anchor the new approaches into the culture. So they leave out some of the steps. Yeah. So very intentionally, we said... These eight steps, let's stick to these eight steps. And if you take the eight steps and you put them around a, a cycle of improvement, so a circle, and you think of a structure, maybe four phases. So the first phase is design. Hmm. So in the design phase are actually the first five steps yes. of change management. And then the second phase is pilot. Um, and the pilot is, is that sixth step, generate short-term wins. And then... The third phase is the implement, and then the fourth phase, which everybody else forgets, is the sustain. And I think a critic would say, well, you're spending all of your, why don't you just jump to the implement? You know, you know what to do. And yeah, if you want short-term victory, that may, that might um, be the most expeditious uh, way, but you're not going to have lasting long-term change. Um, cultural change and, and influence the practices and behaviors in a in a permanent way. Way, 
And I think that's that's where you get from an administrative point of view, it's looking for that result rather than the hard work that goes into that preparatory stages in that design, those those first five elements that are there. And so they often try and skip all of that and run, jump to it. And yeah. you've got to almost rein it back and, and let it take its natural course as you progress through because it is a cultural change. You're looking to make a transformative change in there. And it's got to be taken in stages, which is why we went through those yeah. so methodically. Yeah. So the focus on design or the overemphasis on design, the first five steps, I think there's famous generals that have said planning is everything, plans are nothing. Yeah. So I think we found out, we found the same thing. Yeah. Um, so step one, establishing a sense of urgency. So the sense of urgency is we have, um, in our system, we have... 4,000 patients a month that present with chest pain. So that's almost 50,000 a year. Yeah. Um, out of those 4,000, we found that less than 1% are having an acute heart attack. And so we, we do a, a great job of identifying those with an ST segment elevation myocardial infarction. We yep. call it a STEMI. And you whisk them straight to the cath lab within an hour and the door to balloon time to open up that coronary artery that's shutting down on you. And that, that's life-saving. Yep. So those keep doing that. The other 99% that are not having a STEMI, that are not having that life-threatening uh, shutdown of their artery, how do you sort them into um, the high likelihood that they're going to have a heart attack in the next month or so? or there's no chance that they're gonna have um, a heart attack in the next month. So showing the data, the, just the basic data to the team of these are, this is the volume of patients we see, this is the percentage that, that we admit, this is the, the percentage that we put in observation, and this is the, uh, these are the ones that we um, sent home. So back when we started this, a quarter of the patients that we saw, we uh, felt that they were stable for discharge to the hospital. Yes. And then half of the patients that we saw, we put into the observation status. And then a quarter of the patients that we saw, we admitted to the hospital. And showing national norms and international norms, we actually were pretty conservative of keeping 75% of patients in the hospital where nationally the figure was much lower at, at uh, maybe 50% or so. Yeah. Um, so establishing that sense of urgency was, was step one of just, here are the facts. Here's the data, not making any judgment, but showing them uh, local information. And, and that, that helped because often that, that's where data really comes in and can start to help because it, it, it sets up that motivation of why we need to do this, why we need to do this now. And rather than look into the long distant future is to be able to say, look, if we're going to take care of this, We've got to jump on it, and, and this is why. Yeah. And, and that's where I think bringing out that, that state of urgency is, is, is key to start the ball rolling. Right, because no one's going to change what they do if, they, if there's not a sense of urgency. No. If it's, if it's um, hey, th this is what we need to the do. The motivation, the excitement, it, it's yeah. a bit like the football game and the coach standing there and, and winding the team up, ready to go on there. Yeah, if you're in the last two minutes and you're down by a couple <clears throat> points, that's a sense of urgency. Yeah, and, so. and that's, that's almost what we have to try and pick up and we've got to motivate people to get to. Yeah, so step two, create the guiding coalition. What we found is it can't be a smart doctor who's over at the corporate headquarters in their cubicle 
saying, well, I've read the literature and this is what you should do. It's actually got to be frontline physicians, the emergency medicine physician, the cardiologist, the hospital medicine specialist, the doctor that um, works in observation units, getting them together along with the key nursing staff involved with um, the patients that, that present and the treatment. And you don't want every single physician, because that would be in the hundreds, but you want to have each of those represented and it doesn't necessarily have to be the chairman of the department or the oldest or wisest person, um, but it has to be uh, part of that powerful coalition that is is passionate and is willing to um, uh, to contribute to. Here's the best way to take care of and, patients. And this needs to be someone as well that all the, the people that we we chose on the pathways that we drive forward is those people that will be listened to. They're the people that are on the ground. They're doing the job day in, day out. And as you say, it's not an academic who's sat in an ivory tower that can be able to produce, these are the current research, and this is what I believe the route forward is. These are the people that are actually doing the job. These are the people that influence the rest of their peers. And they're the ones that when when they talk, people listen. And being able to have them as part of that guiding coalition and to work as a team, they're a group of people rather than one individual. We don't just go to a cardiologist and say, what do you do? Because those patients are treated by the ED docs, by the hospitalists, by the intensivists, and by the nurses. And, And bringing that mixed bag together as part of that coalition builds up really what you need to do, not just what you think you need to do. Yeah. And... I actually remember the first time that we got the eight physicians in the same room and they looked around and it wasn't eight physicians of the same specialty, but it was kind of two of each. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's um, physicians with clinical gravitas and most of the time they, they don't hesitate to speak up their opinion, but they all had the um, kind of the right attitude of, hey, we're here to, what's the best way to, to um to treat patients with this condition. Uh, I think it's important as well. You bring up a good point because it, one of the other big things is it is a mixed bag that come in and there's almost got to be that philosophy of your egos are going to be checked outside. We're going to sit down and we're going to come up with a solution and we're going to do this amongst us. This is not an independent benefit of one group or another. This is about working for the patient and by gathering that group together, it's give us your best thoughts. Don't give us your politics. Don't give us your arguments. Give us what's the right thing to do. Yeah, it sounds like there is no I in team. No. So sharing the the local and the national data and, okay, we get it. And then that powerful coalition being in the same room. And then the next two steps are intertwined. Yeah. So develop the vision. So the vision is what is the best way to take care of patients with this condition. And then the step four is how do we communicate that division, so you, that vision? So you have to have a plan about here's the vision, keep it simple, straightforward, and here's how we are gonna communicate the vision so we're all on the same page. And I think it's important to actually define where that vision's going and, and to not try and solve you know, world hunger, and you've, you've got to look at what's practical. And by having that coalition there, they, they can actually come up with what's right for the patient. What do we need to define as the elements that we're going we're gonna to actually progress through? We're not going to pull metrics from nowhere. Right. And, and, just and say a, it. a tangent that's very important is 
I think the physicians, once they saw, we're not doing what's best for the hospital. Yeah. We're not doing what's best for business. Let's focus on what's best for the patient. And what I found is if you do what's best for the patient, then it's actually best for business also. Yeah. Because it's, it's um, just doing the, doing the right thing. People will more migrate towards success. And by providing the right care at the right time to the right person, promotes success. And that helps your, your clinical staff. That, that helps the hospital in its own right. But more importantly, it helps the patient. And the patients are the consumers. Yeah. And by, by, by bringing together the right people and by looking at what we want to change and not making it too, too diffuse by, by focusing in on those and then being able to take that and communicate that with their peers to be able to say, look, we all have a common end. They're the important elements that go into that, that initial phase of the cycle. So the powerful coalition's there. Yep. They have the national literature. They mm -hmm. have the pertinent local data. They know the, the guidelines that are out there. Yep. And at a point, it doesn't matter that it's guidelines from a healthcare system that's a thousand miles away. It, it, what matters is this information, this is the best way to treat patients that come into our system. And in step three, it's not just develop the vision, but it's also develop the strategy. Yep. So the strategy are the goals, objectives, activities. So the one that we found the most important is a consensus written algorithm. Yep. Now, every physician I talk to, they say, oh, I don't follow a recipe. You know, I don't, you know, I don't do cookbook medicine. Okay, great. How do you take care of a patient with chest pain? And they proceed to tell you, I do A, B, and C, and then D and E. Okay, so we write that down. And then we talk to all eight of the physicians, and they all tell us the exact same, same thing. Um, so taking that, writing it down into an algorithm, and it doesn't have to be an absolute dictum of you will follow this or you'll get your wrist slapped, but it's this is what this powerful coalition can agree on. Hey, this is the best way to take care of patients. So we have that consensus-written algorithm, and then the strategy will be, we'll provide that to everyone that is taking care of patients. Our healthcare system, we have about 120 uh, physicians in the emergency departments that are all, um, here's the algorithm that you could follow. And the guidance is to follow it, but if you don't, that's perfectly okay, just tell us why. And I think it was important as well that the algorithm that's there is 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 written by them. It's not a suit turning up and saying, yeah. this is what you will do. This is their best thoughts, their their best knowledge that's put down into a format that they can follow. And and you're absolutely right. It, it's not about sticking to it rigidly because we're back to our widgets again. We have right. widgets that talk. Everything changes. And being able to give that that clinical nous that's there, the, the ability to make changes on the hop for that particular patient is hugely important. So if you couple that with this is written by you for you and you don't have to stick to it rigidly, but if you do change, tell us why. Yep. And you can actually learn from those deviations. That's, yeah. that's where the rich learning is. But just shifting it to voluntary, here's the consensus written algorithm by your trusted peers and 
if, if and you'll find that most people will tend to tend to just follow the algorithm. And I I think that we found over tens of thousands of patients, more than 80% of the time, the physicians just follow the algorithm. Yeah. Now, somebody might say, well, 20% of the time they're not. But when we looked at the 20% of the time they're not following it, actually the vast majority of it was because of individual um, patient deviation. There's individual, you know, they had an arrhythmia um, or some other factor that just wasn't quite accounted for in the algorithm. Um, and a few times they would deviate it from just because, oh, yeah, I just... It's Tuesday. Yeah, yeah it's, <laughs> the thing's different. But that, that, that again, in its own right, is, is important because we did see that when they did change from that, there was a valid reason behind it. And that, that helps to encompass back in, as you said earlier, is that that becomes the rich learnings of it. The tapestry starts to to weave itself at that point and and helps to motivate. It keeps that that cycle going um, and and keeps adding to it, so that you can see one one of the big things with a lot of the the quick fire techniques to get ch change going is is pretty staid. It becomes static. And by using this, we see that the rivers continue to flow. And because of that, that motivates. So we keep that sense of urgency going. And, and the, the physicians, the nurses, everyone that are practicing using this, this pathway, they know that the information they put back in when they make the changes equates to that, that bigger learning to, to keep it moving on. Yeah. And I think that, that helps keep it rolling. Um, and that then moves on to that... Um, em empowerment of allowing them to, to give broad-based actions. Yeah, so, yeah, Cotter's step five, em empower employees for broad-based action. And the important thing is you have that consensus written algorithm, and what was fascinating is all I did the physicians, well, this is how I practice. Yeah. Well, this is my idea eight years ago. So in step five, it all comes down to barriers. Yeah. Why, why can't you do that? And they, they will identify the barriers, and that is where the, um, that's where all the, the action is, is identifying those barriers. Often it's actually the healthcare system. Yep. And then either removing or mitigating or addressing each of those barriers. So that takes some time, and if you dismiss those or skip over those, you're just not gonna. You're not gonna make any change. You're not gonna make any progress. No, they'll they'll continue to come back and haunt you. Yeah. And you can't just brush those aside or move around them. You've you've got to positively impact those particular barriers that are there, and and feedback that you've achieved a change on that particular issue, uh, and communicate that back through. And I think that's important as well. Is that that needs to keep the information flowing both ways as you, as you progress through because those barriers can take time sometimes. If you, you have a healthcare system that's been going for, you know, a hundred and odd years, then a culture has developed there that, that may need changing in its own right. And it's not just that you're trying to, to make a new culture that's there or to change something that was pre-existing that's, that's easy to change. These can be ingrained historically and it can take some hard work to get those. And so you have to communicate back that we are making the changes. We are starting to remove those barriers and they won't all necessarily happen overnight and that we can still progress 
being aware that those those barriers are there and we're still working on them whilst we're progressing. So it doesn't necessarily have to stop that that movement on, but you've got to communicate that you're continuing to address those elements that are there. Yeah. So in step five, it was two things. It was back to empower the front line yep. and then hold them accountable with reasonable measures. Mm-hmm. Taking two or three key performance measures that the coalition came up with. Yep. And you'll find in healthcare, we have all kinds of metrics and usually administrators, why don't you do these 50 measures or these 100? And we drown in the, just the... Um, the Korkmaier Yeah, the, the bookkeeping metrics. of the yeah. metrics. So what are the two key performance measures? And if you go back to the written algorithm, there's usually one or two decision points. Yep. And, and the kind of the most important decision that emergency medicine physician makes is am I going to keep this patient or am I going to am I going to treat them or am I going to treat them? Am I going to keep them or are they going to transition to to follow up care? So that that became one of the key performance measures. The second one is in the algorithm uh, using a stratification tool. So the stratification tool um, they picked one called the Heart Score, and so the stratification tool done correctly identifies you into high risk of having a heart attack in the next 45 days intermediate risk or low risk. So not how many patients went to each, but the key performance measure was, did you use the stratification tool? The third key performance measure uh, came out of um, the kind of the algorithm, but also addressed one of the barriers they had is the physician said, I don't trust that the patient that I say is good for discharge will ever get seen in follow-up. So we actually, the third thing we tracked was the patient's uh, stable for discharge that didn't have an assigned physician, how many of them got an appointment within 72 hours and actually followed up with that. So we would feed those three pieces of information back to the, by physician, back to each of them on a periodic basis. So that was uh, step five. So all of this is before there's actually been Any, anything Anything done. happening, yeah. yeah. But, I, I, but then then you step onto that, that next phase. And that next next phase is is about applying what you've gathered, all those learnings that you've got, and to try and start to achieve something. And and that phase integrates into generating those short-term wins. Give give something back to the group that will enable them to to motivate, to keep that um, to keep that sense of urgency going, and to progress as as quickly or as slowly as necessary. Yeah. So we had a little bit of push from a people not involved in the process. Okay, mm-hmm. you know what to do. Why don't you just go and do, put yeah. this to all of your eight emergency departments yeah. at the time? And that could be logical, but if you follow the methodology, step number six is generate short-term win. So we picked one hospital that's about 300 beds, and they see about 100,000 patients a year in their emergency department. So a, a busy place. And they had two of the um, the champions uh, for the coalition that that practiced there. Um, so we did a two-month pilot. We saw 400 patients, followed the methodology, and then took those results and communicated the results back to the coalition, but then also to um, emergency physicians, uh, the, the whole system-wide group, the cardiologist, the um, hospital medicine, so the different uh, the different stakeholders yep. in the care. And at that point, 
there's actually no holding back because they're going to spread it whether the system is going to help them or not. Um, and part of it is, I think the second patient one of the doctors saw, he was going to discharge the patient, but he followed the algorithm and did the, um, the three-hour second troponin, the blood test, and it actually turned out positive instead of negative, and it, it saved him. So from that moment on, um, which about one in a hundred of those low risk, it's going to happen like that. It reinforced follow the algorithm, and it'll it actually it won't make it harder. It makes it better. And and, and that's important because that's almost the one of the short term wins. What in some aspects could be conceived as a as a failure was actually a success because it proved that that consensus of everybody brought together and the pathway that was built from that actually worked. It was a way of treating the individual patients rather than just moving them through a, a process. Yeah, through healthcare is littered with doubting Thomases. Yes. And actually, it takes some of them and changes them into true believers. And, and they become your your best focus. Right, yeah, the, the, the advocate, the champion, the ambassador. Yeah. So step seven. So finally, we've been chatting a lot, but now we get to seven, step seven, so actually we're implementing. In the implementation system-wide, you still need to do those three key measures. Yep. And you still need to feed that back to the medical directors by individual physician. Over time, you continue to, to do the key measures and uh, provide them the accountability. And also, your algorithm, you have to be willing to, hey, we need to update it based yep. on... It's important not to be married to it and get so focused on that, that algorithm that it, it becomes the be-all and end-all. This is the, um, the skeleton to the body. And as, as you gain that information, you start to put flesh on it. And much the same as us, as, <laughs> as you get older, you get fatter, and then you exercise and you get skinnier, and it moves all the time. Uh, and I think it's important that it is a living, breathing entity. And by gathering more information from different areas, from different hospitals within the system, you learn different things. The demographics of your patients change, and that allows you the richness that you can feed back into it, and you can start to motivate and generate because things change. And when you say that my area only has a certain demographic and this won't cope with these patients, and then you can prove that it does because it can change, that it is living and breathing and can, can generate the solutions there and that you can see the wins, then you start to continue with that excitement. And you take that and feed that back into the other areas so that they can learn from that as well. Yeah. And last but not least, and some would argue the most important is step eight. Yeah. So step eight is anchor the new approaches into culture of just, well, this is the way we've always done it. And the way you do that is you take those two or three key performance measures and you still follow through with that. So we're now several years after, yeah. the, after the pilot and the system-wide implementation, and each physician still knows through electronic ways that we feed back to them, I saw a patient with chest pain, and what's the percent that I used the, util the utilization, what's my what percent did I use the, the stratification tool, the heart score? Yeah. And then did my patients get followed up and seen? And also, where did they go? Um, admit, discharge, um, to observation. And we have that individual, and we also have that um, as a whole. And, and, and I think it's it's good as well that with, with those, when you, when you anchor that approach, that there is a 
it, it's a positive learning that you can give so that as you progress through, as you continue to follow this, you can start to look if there are changes and you can see those changes early on. So if you do short cycle, then what tends to happen is once you're finished, everyone moves on. With this, it's culture. You're changing a lifestyle almost with what they're doing. And by staying on top of it, you can give them focus and direction as we start to veer off. Okay, why? What's happening? Has it changed within the area or have we just forgotten? And bring them back in on focus. It was really interesting. I, I, one of the measures that we look at is, almost anecdotally, is that when we go to a hospital and we start talking to new residents that are there, and especially if you talk about chest pain, we'll tell you about chest pain. No, you don't need to. We know all about that. It's been here for hundreds of years. It's the way it's always been done. We then know we've got the cultural change. Yeah. We know it's so ingrained that it's expected. It's even when residents have left and gone on to other systems, we've got return calls. Yeah, they say, call back and say, yeah. send us a... Can you send it? We, we don't yeah. do that here. We, it's hard to work without it. Yeah. How, how do we get that? How do we work on with it? Yeah. Uh, Which brings up one other thing in step eight. So step eight, another way to anchor it is we actually take, took the heart score and embedded it into the electronic medical yeah. record. So that is a way to anchor it into the culture. So for, for Advent Health Clinical Transformation, the methodology, eight steps is too many to remember. So it's actually, we, we, we found that healthcare clinicians are used to four things. They're mm -hmm. used to the cycle of improvement. So if you take it and you have four phases, the four phases are design, yep. pilot, implement, sustain. Yep. So you've got to go through those four phases before you get to performance. And for the, for the design phase, it actually covers the first five steps of change management 101. Yep. And then, um, then it's kind of six, seven, eight correlate with a, a phase of um, pilot, implement, and sustain. So that's the uh, Advent Health clinical transformation methodology. And it, it was interesting because from what we'd experienced, we haven't really heard of anyone within healthcare utilizing that type of process. Uh, but I mean, if you look, well, they're all about rapid cycle, quick wins. Yeah, and and that that cultural change hadn't been brought in, and and it was interesting that no one had really gone about it that way and and looked at it differently, and that was almost a scary thing for us when we started. Was we've we've got to leap into the darkness and try and create some light from there. Yeah, I had one administrator ask me, "Why do you spend so much time on the design?" Hmm. So I said, "Well, have you ever built a house? Yeah. Did you use a blueprint? Did you design?" Oh, okay. Because it doesn't go well if you don't have a blueprint, if you don't follow the um, the blueprints and the design of your house. Otherwise, it's just chaos. And you can throw a structure up, but it may not it not, may not make it through the hurricane. No. And, and, and it's interesting because you've got all of these different processes. You look at Toyota and, and everything that they've done with Lean and all of the Six Sigma stuff. And, and what we've done is we've almost taken engineering and said we have nothing ourselves in healthcare let's take that and try and adjust healthcare to match that what we're looking to do and what we've done is to take a, a, a systematic approach that's all encompassing that's living and breathing from healthcare and just applied some of those elements that we know and do on a regular basis and incorporate those in to to start to drive that the the, the pathways I think what we find is one person's innovation is someone else's disruption. Yes. So 
I think we were one of the first that kind of put it together. Well, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about practice and behaviors of physicians based on values that they hold. Okay, well, that's change management. That's culture. Yeah. Culture, how do you affect it? You use change management. And there are no shortcuts when you're talking about culture. You can't, um, you can't wake up and be uh, baptized into a new culture. You have to go through the experience. Uh, yeah, go through the, the, the steps and for the, uh, for the conversion to, to take hold. I'm still working on the English to American culture change, so I'm getting there. Yeah. But. <laughs> well, I'll go through the eight steps. So for, for, brought, for appeal to physicians um, or to any, any other humans, we talk about appealing to uh, the head, the hand, and the heart. Right. And I think that it depends on what order you, you choose, but we found what, what often works with doctors and nurses is appeal to the heart of what's the right thing to do for patients. Yep. How would you Absolutely. want to be treated when you are presented to this complex, chaotic system? Um, what's the right thing to do for patients? What's the right thing to do for people? And then uh, appealing to, to their thought process, to their head, is, is this a understandable method of, you know, well, what's, what's this based on? It's not just a recipe medicine. It's actually based on relevant data, um, evidence, uh, practice experience that you and your peers have come up with. Here's the, um, the guidance in a consensus-written algorithm. It's certainly okay to deviate. Just tell us so that we can capture uh, for future. Um, so that's kind of the how. And then the, um, uh, the hands are to take the methodology that might be words in a circle and take that into action. And often I've had a, a doctor tell me, you know, I kind of forgot what to do. So I remembered the next step of the algorithm, you know, this, this was the next uh, decision point and you put that into action. And it, it gives that time of, of thought as well in there, that, that during that action with where you've, you've built up the, the heart, you've, you've built up that influence that they have of looking out for patients to be able to care with them. Um, the decision-making that's that clinical aspect that's there. And then the action that you can take and you, it does bring them together. And that, that whole process, that whole algorithm, that whole cycle that's there is part and parcel of the, of the normal being when you're treating patients and, and allows you the time to, to think the processes through to almost join with peers that are not necessarily there at that time to be able to communicate, hang on, this is, this is what everybody else is doing with these. This is that, that community standard that we're building of, of practice and it's the right thing to do. And it's based on science. It's based on what everybody else is doing and it, it's based on success for the patient. Yeah. Everyone kind of gets fascinated with innovation. And so innovation can be, you know, new whiz-bang technology in people like that flashy, or it can be a new process. Um, but it also can be a new idea. So disruptive innovation, actually, this new idea of having a methodology based on change management principles, driving right to the, uh, to the heart of the matter of the best way to take care of patients, um, is a classic disruption example because it's low-tech yep. and it um, is a grassroots effort. Yep. It leaves the rest of the business model intact. 
the rest can still do what they want. And it quickly, quietly, over time, it just becomes the way that you do business. Well, I would like to use the analogy with that. It's, it's a bit like that campfire with a pot of water on top of it. And if you, when you heat the water up for your, for your tea, not your coffee, then what you'll do is you'll see the little bubbles rising around there, around the edges. And you'll turn away and for a couple of minutes and turn back again, and then you can see it boiling over. And it's that quiet approach, the small bubbles build and build and build until you have that massive change that's there. And that then changes right the way through. So you've got your boiling water, you've got your steam, you've got everything you need for your tea. And, and that's, that's part of that, the progress that comes through. It's from the grassroots, it's bubbling away, it's in everyone because it's the right thing to do. And these, these pathways, these roots, these phases help to drive that, to build energy into it so that they can bring out that information and, and do the right thing. Well, I think I would take the tea and put it on ice. So that, uh, that might be a different a different conversation. But yeah. it would allow you to do that as part right. of the pathway. Yep. So it, it develops so we can have it in the UK of having boiling tea or we can have it as ice in the US in the South. Yeah, it probably depends so, on your culture. Yeah, and yeah. that's it. Yeah. So I think the critical question for healthcare leaders, the moment of truth, we saw immediate results from the methodology for, yes. for one clinical problem, chest pain. Um, but there was still the question lingering in the air just as probably it does for anyone listening or reading this. If we present you with a proven path for transformation, are you willing to take it? That concludes this episode of Transformative Healthcare, a limited edition 14-part podcast series. I've been your host, Todd Chobatar. To discover other great resources to help you feel whole in mind, body, and spirit, please visit us at adventhealthpress.com. And while you're there, remember to sign up for our free newsletter. It includes healthy living tips, leadership wisdom, and regular giveaways. And tune in for our next episode, where we'll be talking about the upside-down pyramid, people versus processes, and the Olympics. Thanks for joining us.